is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in today. I think a lot of us have like certain styles of cases that really pique our interest. And for me, it's these older, like dark winter cases. And this one happens to take place in one of my favorite New England towns. So that really piqued my interest. Actually, I was just there last week. I was in Massachusetts and it was amazing. And this town is just beautiful. And this case is such an intriguing mystery to the area. So thank you so much, Jason M., for sending this case suggestion in a few months ago. I can't believe I hadn't heard of it before, but really appreciate you sending it in. Yeah, and by the way, it's our 150th episode. I wanted to do something special for it, but I just, it came so fast now that we're doing the two episodes a week and I don't, I didn't know what the hell to do. Yeah, so I guess we're just going to have to do something crazy for uh, episode 200. Yes, absolutely. So thank you guys so much for bringing us to 150 episodes. Here's to 150 more. All right, guys, this is episode 150 of Going West. So let's get into it. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. In November of 1950, a coastal Massachusetts school teacher was found murdered while a treacherous nor'easter hit the small town. In one of the biggest mysteries of Essex County, a minister's daughter's life and secrets are picked apart in hopes of finding her vicious killer. This is the story of Beryl Atherton, also known as the murder in Marblehead. Beryl Marguerite Atherton was born in 1907 in Wyndham County, Connecticut to parents Daisy and Warren Atherton, and she was an only child. I'd actually never heard the name Beryl before, but I read that it means crystal, so there's that for anyone else who's curious. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. And um, both of Beryl's parents were born in the 1860s in Connecticut, her mother Daisy being a housewife and her father Warren being a pastor in Marblehead, Massachusetts, at the First Baptist Church, and Beryl was actually the one to find him dead. 
1937, he was 70 years old, and Beryl went home to her parents' house after work, which is where she also lived at the age of 30, and she saw her father dead in his chair in the living room. And he had been in poor health for years, which brought him to retire from being a pastor six years before his death. And actually, when Beryl was just eight years old, her 45-year-old mother, Daisy, died from tuberculosis. So by the age of 30, both of Beryl's parents were dead. Beryl spent the majority of her upbringing in Connecticut, but her family relocated to Marblehead, Massachusetts in 1924 when Beryl was 16 or 17 years old. Today, Marblehead has nearly 20,000 residents, but back in the 1920s, it only hosted around 8,000, so much smaller. It's an old harbor town, which is, it's beautiful, and it's in the same county as the city of Salem, which sits right next to Marblehead on the coast as well, and both are under an hour from Boston. Marblehead is an absolutely beautiful, nice, quaint little town, and it's where Beryl and her parents spent the rest of their days. So by the age of 30, Beryl was all alone. Her parents were gone, she wasn't married, and she didn't have any close friends, and she typically just kind of kept to herself. And actually her best friend was her dog, a white spitz named Esky. Beryl worked as a school teacher at the Glover School, which is a public elementary school on Maple Street, right there in Marblehead, established in 1916. She lived with her father until the day he died, but then she kept living in the house, which was a slightly rundown clapboard cottage at 57 Sewell Street, with two bedrooms and one bathroom, sat on a sharp corner surrounded by other homes, and it's also a short distance from Old Town and Downtown Marblehead. By the time Beryl was 47 years old in 1950, she had been teaching for about 25 years, and at this point she was teaching fifth grade at the Glover School. She was still unmarried and living in the cottage on Sewell Street, and when she wasn't teaching, she spent most of her outings either at a beauty parlor or at the movie theater. In November of that year, winter storms were coming, and a nor'easter was headed towards New England. And for those who don't know, you know, maybe if you don't live in the U.S. or on the East Coast, nor'easters are East Coast storms that can get really, really violent and cause a ton of damage. And in particular, in late November of 1950, what was called the Storm of the Century hit the Eastern United States, which killed over 300 people and caused millions of dollars worth of damage. It was called the Appalachian Storm, and it hit just two days after Thanksgiving. It involved extreme winds with hurricane-like force, several feet of snow, high tides, and low temperatures. However, I know that this particular storm, the Appalachian Storm, hit Connecticut, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, and beyond, but I couldn't find particularly somehow if it hit Massachusetts, even though Massachusetts is right there amongst all these other small states. Yeah, we kind of have to assume that it probably did. Yeah, I can't imagine that it didn't, but we do at least know that there was indeed a nor'easter, a very bad storm in the Marblehead area at this time that included very heavy rains and up to 70 mile per hour winds. So two days after Thanksgiving, which was Saturday, November 25th, 1950, right as the Appalachian storm was coming in, Beryl had the day off. You know, it's the weekend, holiday weekend too. So she used this opportunity to run some errands, which included her picking up a fur coat out of storage in Salem 
and hitting the grocery store in Marblehead for chicken, pork chops, beef, a pound of butter, a pound of tea, carrots, a loaf of bread, a bag of donuts, and a newspaper, the Boston Traveler. She didn't ever leave the house on Sundays, and people knew this about her. So she did her errands on Saturday to prepare for the following day and week, which, at least on Sunday, would include nothing but staying in. When Beryl got back to her home from her errands, the rain had gotten really intense. After getting soaked from said errands, she took out the trash, got more soaked, and then headed inside to change. The last time she was seen was while she was taking out the trash, dressed in her fur coat, and emptying the trash by her back door, which she left unlocked, and a boy delivering newspapers spotted her during his rounds after 6 p.m. Once inside, Beryl hung the blue shirt that she had been wearing that day on her banister to dry, and wore just her white slip dress and pink sweater as she prepared her dog Esky's dinner, which that night was uh, chunks of meat, before putting her groceries away. And by the way, we can say pretty certainly that this meant Beryl was not expecting company, because she would never even let a girlfriend in the house while she was wearing a slip dress. But while her purse sat on the dining table and the groceries on the kitchen counter, and minutes before the nor'easter would shut out all the lights in town, someone approached Beryl in her own home. It's believed that her dog Esky was kicked really hard out of the kitchen since he had several broken ribs, possibly while he was trying to attack this assailant. There are, by the way, many reports that say the dog wasn't hurt in the attack after all, but a lot of them say that he was, so we can't be sure about this, but we do know that after this night, Esky was taken in by a local vet who took ownership over him, so he was taken care of. I'm glad Esky at least had a new home. Oh, I know, me too. And I mean, like you said earlier, this is like Beryl cared so much about Esky, and this is all she wanted. She actually was supposed to write a will, like she had planned to write a will, and in the will have arrangements for Esky, but she never got around to doing it. So Beryl was a tall and very thin woman, and she suffered multiple broken ribs, three to be exact, as well during this attack. Then the assailant used a sharp knife to stab her shoulder and chest, then strangled her, and the killer was strong enough to crush a bone in her neck, which shut off her windpipe and suffocated her. And then they took a smaller knife and slashed her throat. The killer broke the carving knife that Beryl used to cut up her dog's dinner into multiple pieces for some reason, like they snapped the actual blade into multiple pieces. Probably Uh, during the attack, I'm assuming, right? Well, I'll talk about in a second. This knife was not proven to be used in the attack, so it's kind of like, I don't know why... We, we don't know why it was snapped into pieces. Very weird. He just had some, like, knife frustration he needed to get out. <laughs> Maybe. I have no idea. But then he returned, apparently, the other knife to a kitchen drawer. So with that, this assailant completely disappeared out of sight. None of the other houses on Sewell Street were aware of what was going on in the Atherton home because of this loud storm that was raining down on the community. So you just, you couldn't hear anything. Because think about it. Heavy, heavy rain, extreme high winds. Like, you, you're not going to hear somebody scream in a house next to you. This honestly kind of sounds like a movie to me. You know how sometimes in movies, like, you know, the killer usually strikes on a stormy, stormy night. Yes. And nobody sees anything because everybody's indoors and it's 
you know, a lot of rain and wind and, you know. Well, I think that was a huge thing about this case that interested me, that it happened during this nor'easter. It just makes it so much more scary. And intense, yeah. Absolutely. So also, especially because the power went out shortly after Beryl's attack. So she wouldn't have been able to use her phone if she was conscious, which she wasn't. And, you know, no, no one was coming for her, sadly. So even the next morning, when things appeared calm, even for a Sunday, everyone tried to just get things back to normal because there was a ton of fallen tree limbs and twisted power lines, and the streets were covered in debris. So everyone was outside trying to kind of clean everything up. So no one looked for Beryl or wondered why they didn't see her. Because again, she never left her house on Sundays, like not even to grab her morning paper. That's so interesting to me. I wonder why that is. I think maybe because of her religious background, maybe she just decided to, you know, like a day of fully a day of rest where she was just inside doing whatever she would do. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Exactly. But around 8 a.m. the following morning, so Monday, the neighborhood milkman, who's a man named Kenneth Phillips, was making his rounds through the neighborhood when he came upon Beryl's house. So Kenneth saw that Beryl's back door leading to her kitchen was open, but he didn't hear anything. He was there to bring her normal delivery of one quart of milk, so he decided to peer inside to do so. And that's when he saw Beryl's body lying on the floor face up in her kitchen by the refrigerator. So in his shock and horror, he ran across the street to the neighbors, who are the Chapmans, to call police. He said into the phone, it's about Miss Atherton, She's lying dead in a pool of blood. The walls and ceiling had blood on them. The newspaper she had picked up the night before was scattered all around. And I actually read that part of it was underneath her body. So like maybe in the struggle, it fell on the floor and it was just, there was like papers everywhere. Yeah, so it was just, everything was everywhere. Beryl's broken pearl necklace lay nearby and the crime scene appeared incredibly brutal. And as Daphne said, Beryl had slashes into her throat, but to describe this further and explain how gruesome this was, a cut was made from below her chin down to her breastbone, and another from ear to ear. However, an old newspaper report stated that there was no clear cross on her neck, as you can imagine it would appear as, but instead, there were between six and nine separate slashes to her neck that didn't appear to have any particular design or direction at all although many still believe it was supposed to be a cross, which could have some sort of symbolism. Either way, this was a savage murder on a simple woman who was just making dinner for her dog in her own damn kitchen. Yeah, that was something that interested me off the bat as well with this case was learning that she was a pastor's daughter and then she had a cross, quote, carved into her neck. That's what all these old newspapers said. Like this one headline was, in all this bold lettering, the killer carved a cross. So you might think this has symbolism to her religious background, but the police were kind of like, no, there was a lot of different slash marks and there wasn't, it didn't appear that it was supposed to be a cross. Yeah, I mean, having six to nine different slash marks in different directions, but, but what's weird to me is that usually when you slash somebody's neck, you go, you know, horizontally. So it's interesting that there was that vertical cut you know, well, uh, and, down her breastbone. And the slashes at all. I mean, the police also said it just appeared that the killer wanted to make sure she was dead because at the time of the slashing, they supposed that she was unconscious because him he broke that bone in her neck first. So 
it's it's a little unclear, but either way, it was it was very very brutal. Yeah, it kind of feels like a almost like a crime of passion with how you know. Oh my god, it was super intense. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So sadly, the crime scene didn't offer very much information because there was initially no sign of forced entry. There were no fingerprints or footprints that they were able to collect, and no witnesses saw anyone enter or leave Beryl's home that evening. Nothing appeared to be stolen from the house, and Beryl had not been sexually assaulted. So police started to think that maybe when Beryl came home, someone was already there like planning to rob the house. But since she caught them in the act, they killed her. But still, like we're saying, like why kill her so brutally and then take nothing? Which only leads us to believe that maybe Beryl's killer knew her and they had a different motive. And the robbery motive also really doesn't make sense to me anyway because Beryl made what would equal around $2,000 a month today. She lived in a house that's under 1,000 square feet that was described as drab and run down. You know, not so much so that it was extremely decrepit and falling apart, but just enough that it didn't appear someone with money lived there. However, she did have a collection of sterling silver pieces, which were worth thousands of dollars at that time, and they were still sat in the cabinet when police arrived. And as we mentioned earlier, Beryl was known to be quiet. She didn't have very many friends or a husband, but she was allegedly dating someone seriously before she was murdered. She was in a romantic relationship with a local man, but their relationship reportedly ended in 1942 after he fell in love with another woman from Maine, though Beryl was previously certain that he was going to propose to her. She was also known to have at least three other relationships simultaneously, but none were serious, who lived out of town as well. But as far as friends go, many of her closest pals were actually teachers that she worked with. When Beryl passed away, a replacement teacher named Mrs. Perkins was put in her students' class, and they returned to their normal learning as usual. And although they absolutely loved Miss Atherton, they were too young to fully grasp what had happened to their beloved teacher. Meanwhile, police got to work finding her killer. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year 
with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. As police continued to search Beryl's house, they found blood upstairs in her bedroom and on her pillowcase which indicated to police that the killer may have gone upstairs looking for something. They also concluded that another knife was used in the attack because the one found in the drawer, including the one that the killer had snapped into pieces, were just way too dull to nearly sever her head. So they weren't believed to be the murder weapons. The chief of the Marblehead police canceled all days off for his officers, determined to solve this murder. Since there was almost no blood left in Beryl's body by the time police arrived to the scene, they had to pump a sample out of her heart. Her murder was the first in this town for 65 years. So you can imagine the utter shock that the community experienced, especially considering the brutality of it all. Detective Clement Rogers was on this case and he noticed that a pane of glass was broken in an unlatched front window in Beryl's house, of course, and that the front door itself was also unlatched. This indicated that the killer had broken the glass, reached inside, unfastened the window latch, and then entered through the window. Then, after killing Beryl, they unlocked the door and escaped unseen. Marblehead police started by questioning all of Beryl's neighbors, including the Chapmans, the Glasses, the Butmans, William Best, and Charles Graham, but none of them remembered seeing any people nor any vehicles at the Atherton home on Saturday evening at all. 
And in fact, none of them had even particularly seen Beryl that night either. Because of all of this, police felt confident that the killer knew the district and the neighborhood. And on top of this, police felt that a five foot tall stone wall behind Beryl's house had allowed him to escape unnoticed. Perhaps he had climbed over the wall and silently crept into the darkness through the neighbor's backyards. But it's still a wonder how no one would have noticed all the blood that would have more than likely been all over the killer's clothes, considering how gruesome this crime scene actually was. Yeah, I agree. I feel like there probably would have been a lot of blood on him, and I just really wonder how he got away. Because again, this is like, it's like dinner time in Marblehead. So yeah, maybe there's not a ton of people outside, but... I don't know. It's not It's not like it's the middle of the night where no one's out, you know? Yeah. and I mean, the know, paper boy's out, for God's sakes. Exactly. And, you know, like, considering the brutality of the crime, there's there had to have been a ton of blood just everywhere, well, all we, over this guy. We know it was on the ceilings and the walls, so that kind of tells you a lot. Exactly. So next, police looked into Beryl's ex of eight years prior, but he had a secure alibi and had long moved on from his relationship with Beryl. Yeah, I mean, if anyone was heartbroken out of that relationship, it was Beryl because he left her for a woman in Maine. And I read a lot of newspaper reports from her her friends that she did have who said she was just destroyed after that breakup. Yeah, I can imagine. So police ordered all the knives to be sent to the state lab, which is in Boston, and they asked for every doctor and hospital in the area to report to them if a patient came in to be treated for cuts the day or the day after Beryl was murdered. Detective Ray Foley also wanted to see if any local dry cleaners had gotten any bloodstained clothing in. Local dumps were searched in hoping of potentially finding dumped evidence or even bloody clothing, and eventually, a woman's nightgown, a man's shirt, and a brown stained towel were found, and these were sent to the Boston Crime Lab but sadly, they did not prove to be relevant in Beryl's case. Police soon learned that the Friday before Beryl's death, so just the day before, she went to her safe deposit box in Salem at the Namkeeg Trust Co., and they thought maybe this could be a lead. You know, maybe there were some clues in the safe deposit box. But when they opened the box, they found various papers regarding her father and his religious work. But there was no money, there was no insurance policies, so still... The motive to her murder was this huge mystery. After Beryl stopped at her safe deposit box, she went shopping in Boston with her friend Georgiana Henderson. And according to her, Beryl was in great spirits, which made Beryl's murder seem even more random. No clear motive, nothing seemed wrong in her life. So what happened? Again, Marblehead was absolutely terrified by this murder. And many women in the neighborhood and throughout the community worried that the killer would strike again. They demanded more lighting on the streets and more police protection in general, and what police did do for the time being to help with the, you know, peace of mind of this community, and to avoid another murder, the department hired more officers so that they could check on these houses of middle-aged women periodically. Which is great, you know, because maybe they were thinking, there's a killer out there who's targeting middle-aged women. I mean, who knows? Yeah, I mean, really, who knows? Exactly. So, police wanted to close this so badly, so they continued questioning people between her coworkers, delinquent local teens, and window peepers, but police eventually cleared them all. Knowing that Beryl's life was pretty quiet, they wondered if she had any secrets, if there was anyone out there with information that they wouldn't know to ask. 
So police ordered that her picture be shown across TV screens in New England. And this actually brought in a ton of tips. And yes, in 1950, they did have TV and uh, local news channels. And of course, too, I know that her face was in the papers. It had been in the papers. So they're trying to get her face out there to as many people as possible. But most of these tips were useless. But at least one kind of helped. So the man asked to keep his name anonymous, but he was an accountant from the neighboring town of Lynn, and he gave a little peek into Beryl's real life. On weekends, Beryl often went clubbing in the city of Lynn, which is just two towns over and about 15 minutes away by car from Marblehead. And then when she would get back very early in the morning, she would always walk her dog Esky. This man said that he was friendly, but not intimate with Beryl, and that he first met her in 1946, so four years prior to her death, and that they saw each other on and off for the next three years before he went into the service. This man named two other men from Lynn, both single, who spent time with Beryl here and there. And when investigators questioned them, they both stated that they had nothing to do with her murder. Neither were in love with her, they were just intimate with her on occasion, and that was as far as it went. So why would they kill her? According to them, they wouldn't have, and they didn't know who would want to. But because she was a minister's daughter and a school teacher, she kept these affairs a secret from her friends. So was she hiding anything else? Beryl did have a diary that she typically wrote in every day, but even this didn't bring in anything very helpful. Another lead that police had were these checks that Beryl made semi-frequently for two years leading up to her murder typically for $7 to $10 each, which would be equivalent to around $80 to $115 each. These checks never noted what they were for, but the last one was written about three and a half weeks before her murder on November 1st, 1950. The name on the check has not been revealed, but we do know that it was only the first name, and it's a name that could either belong to a man or a woman. This just makes me wonder because so, by the way, I also read that none of these checks had been canceled. So, none of them were canceled in her checkbook, meaning they were cleared by the bank. So, there's a lot of kind of speculation around what that would mean. And then I also read in a Reddit thread, somebody said that she closed her bank account before she was murdered. And that, I, I couldn't find that in newspaper articles, so I don't know if that's true or where somebody got that information, but that kind of made people speculate too that she closed her account to go run off with somebody and then she ended up getting murdered. Like there's all these weird things about her bank account that are kind of confusing, but it is weird that she wrote these checks unless maybe, you know, for all we know, she had somebody who helped her around the house or took care of her dog or whatever. Or she's making donations to the local church or something. Right. But then at the same time, I think it's like, why didn't that person come forward and say, oh yeah, she wrote me these checks for this. It doesn't seem like police ever solved who these checks were to, which kind of makes you question as well. So two weeks after Beryl's murder, a 35-year-old man in Marblehead assaulted his own family as well as other locals with a butcher knife. So of course, police wondered if he had something to do with the Atherton case because like I said, like her, her murder was the first in 65 years. 
this is a very safe little town. Yeah, this now, shit doesn't happen. Yeah, now you've got this guy running around with a butcher knife attacking people. Yeah, it's just weird. And also, this man had previously been a patient at the Denver State Hospital. But when police questioned him, there just wasn't enough evidence to pin him to Beryl's case, so this was kind of just dropped. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another person of interest who there isn't much information available online about is a teenage boy who happened to be the son of a prominent local family. He was known to be, quote, wild and spoiled and had even been seen wandering around Sewell Street, which again is the street that Beryl lived on, during the storm, wearing an oilskin jacket, also known as a slicker, you know, one of those waterproof jackets that is worn by sailors and fishermen. Yeah, think to the movie, I Know What You Did Last Summer. <laughs> I knew you were going to say <laughs> you that. You knew I was going to put that motherfucker in there, huh? No, because that's, uh, that's exactly where my <laughs> mind went to when I was looking at this. I was like, oh, okay, yes, I know what you did last summer. Yep. So later, an oilskin jacket was allegedly found with a switchblade in the pocket, but it didn't contain any blood. However, this knife was apparently washed with gasoline, which is very bizarre. I wonder why. Do you think that would maybe be to take any sort of DNA off the blade? I should have looked this up. I don't know if gasoline does that. Do you? I couldn't be certain. If you guys know or if anybody does know, let us know. Yeah, I mean, I know that. I mean, unless he he set the blade on fire, I really don't know. And by the way, full disclosure, this prominent teen we're talking about he was mentioned in a Reddit thread, and the person said that they found it in a newspaper article online from a Massachusetts newspaper. And I, I typically don't like to include, or we typically don't like to include information that we can't personally back up with a source, but I thought this information was super interesting, and I searched far and wide, but I could not find a source that gave this information, so I, I don't know who this boy is, but it might be someone named Philip Jenkin, which Heath is going to tell us about right now. I think they might be the same person, but I, I cannot confirm. And we actually know quite a bit about Philip, at least from his own perspective, because he wrote an article for New England Today Living titled, I Was Suspected of Murder. 
On Monday, November 27th, the same day that Beryl's body was discovered, Philip, who was a newly hired high school teacher in Swampscott, which is the town between Lynn and Marblehead, arrived late to the first class that he taught since he had just been to a doctor's office. Two investigators showed up to his office shortly after to ask how he knew Beryl Atherton. Philip thought back to hearing about her murder story and said that he didn't know her at all. But the investigators explained that he was in an evening class with her just a few months prior at Boston University. And we're a bit confused about this because we can't confirm if this means that Beryl was for whatever reason taking night classes, but either way, Philip said that shortly after said course began, he switched to a different one, so he wouldn't have remembered her. The weird thing is that Philip had a cut on his face, and this, of course, stood out to police. They mentioned that he left a raincoat at the cleaners that same morning, and it had stains on it. So this is kind of the reason I think it might be connected to this other boy, even though Philip himself in this article, I was suspected of murder, does not mention any kind of knife. But, you know, this raincoat at the cleaners could be that slicker or the oil skin, you know. And I think police discovered this because, like we said earlier, they asked every cleaner to come forward in the area if there was anything given to them that had any stain on it or anything suspicious. So they then asked if the stains were from the cut on his face and then asked how he got hurt. Philip told them that he had driven off the shoulder of Route 114 the night before, so Sunday, because of the evening fog. He was driving from the town of Andover to Swampscott, where he taught, and when he drove off the shoulder, he said he hit his head against the windshield post. He said that he'd been in Andover visiting some friends after being in Worcester, Massachusetts at his mother's for the Thanksgiving holiday. Now, Philip was a bit younger, like a, a younger guy. I, I don't know how old he was. I'm assuming maybe in like his 20s or his 30s. But investigators still wondered if he could have, you know, maybe had some sort of fling with Beryl and that something went wrong. So the investigators wanted to speak with his mother to confirm his alibi. And they also planned to speak to his doctor about that cut on his face. So later that evening, investigators arrived at Philip's home where they examined his car for damage, and this checked out with this story. And they told Philip that they had spoken with his doctor as well, and that also checked out. So just like that, Philip was no longer a suspect. And years later, 26 years to be exact, Philip even met up with the detective on Beryl's case, Clem Rogers, because Philip wanted to write about the story. He asked if he had a theory as to who the killer was, and Clem said that it had to be someone who knew Beryl's home and lived in Marblehead, and was also more than likely somebody that she knew. But after all these years, her case has still remained unsolved. Clem Rogers has since passed away, and it seems the one person who is still alive and dedicating nearly each and every day to Beryl's case is a man named Harry Christensen. In 1970, when Harry was just 24 years old and attending Salem State College in Salem, he wrote a 12-page paper about Beryl's murder for his English class. He got an A on the paper, but after writing it, he became completely consumed by her case, and he wanted to solve it himself. As the years passed, he became a selectman of Marblehead, which is someone on the board of officials in a town. So he was like on the board of officials in Marblehead and still is, as well as a lawyer. 
but he still dedicated countless hours and days to Beryl's case. He has taken hundreds of photographs of her house. He spent every November 25th from 1970 to 1975 parked outside of Beryl's old house, just kind of hoping the murderer would return, writing down various license plates, by the way, as people drove by, yet to no avail. He questioned Clem Rogers many times before Clem's passing. He studied Beryl's diary, and to this day, Harry still drives by her house hoping to discover something. I'm just so inspired by this man. I think he's amazing. I think just the fact that, you know, she, Beryl doesn't have any family. She didn't have any kids. Both her parents were dead. It kind of seems like her case is just this mystery of the town. And, you know, but it doesn't seem like there's anybody who's still fighting for justice for her in that way. But Harry cares so much about this case and he just wants to bring justice to her name. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, I do too. And 20 years ago, Harry believed that he had actually solved Beryl's murder. And he kept the name of the perpetrator and all his research in an envelope inside of a bank vault. Yeah, and I also read that. I think he still has that because he's still alive. I think he still has that envelope in the bank vault and he has arrangements to hand it over to police when he does die, which is just insane. Yeah, exactly. And until then, he won't reveal the name, you know, to this day due to legal ethics and just wants to test this person's DNA. In 2003, he told the Boston Globe that he was extremely confident in his conclusion. And all he would reveal about the person is that they were a former student of Beryl's and that in 2003, they were still living in Massachusetts and were in their early 70s, meaning at the time of the murder, they would have been a teenager. Police still have preserved scrapings from under Beryl's fingertips, and Harry believes that if police could capture this apparent killer's DNA, it would be a match. But the one reason that they can't test it is because lack of funds. As a selectman of Marblehead, Harry knows all too well what the budget is. And back in 2003, such DNA testing would cost around $40,000. He stated, why spend this kind of money? because she had her life wrenched away from her. Somebody needs to be an advocate for that kind of person. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And next week we'll have two new episodes for you guys to dive into. If you guys, by the way, would be interested in helping with this case, please let us know, comment on our post about it so we can kind of get an idea of how many people would maybe be willing to throw a few bucks to this important cause. We're really interested in setting up a donation to help fund the DNA testing, which we're still trying to figure out how much it would be today and we've contacted Harry. And we of course are interested in donating ourselves, but I mean, every penny counts. So please let us know, because again, just because Beryl doesn't have any living family, it doesn't mean that her case deserves to be unsolved. It's such a huge mystery that still haunts the community. And this vicious killer needs to be caught if they're still alive. Yeah, definitely. Justice needs to be served in this case. Also, for you guys who want extra episodes of Going West, please head over to patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast 
We have a ton of ad-free full-length episodes for you guys to binge. Yes, we just released the episode on Yara Gambarasio. It's a crazy Italian case. I forgot to mention it earlier. We'll mention it next week to remind you guys if you don't go join this weekend. That case is insane. They're actually about to release a Netflix documentary on her case. So go listen to that and over 50 other episodes. But either way, we love you guys so much. Thanks for listening to our show. Thanks for sharing it. It means the world to us. Yes, thank you guys for sharing the show. Also, if you want to leave us a nice review, we love those as well. Oh, yes. Everybody who leaves us a nicer review, just know that it means the world to us and we love you guys. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. credit card bill.